0: I am Sebastian Remy, Application Scientist at Teledyne Princeton Instruments, and you are listening to Science Off Camera, the podcast where I am talking to scientists around the world about their research, how they use scientific imaging and spectroscopy, and how they got to do what they do. This podcast is brought to you by Teledyne Princeton Instruments leading manufacturer of scientific cameras and spectrographs for low-light measurements from X-rays to infrared light. The Nirvana HS InGas camera from Teledyne Princeton Instruments is a high-performance scientific camera for optical imaging and spectroscopy in the NIR2 or SWIR wavelength range featuring unprecedented speed, sensitivity, image quality and ease of use. The Nirvana HS enables cutting-edge research in the IR for applications from astronomy to deep tissue optical in vivo imaging in the lab and the operating room. Book an online consultation and demonstration at princetoninstruments.com to see how the Nirvana HS camera will fit into your application. In this episode of Science of Camera, I'm talking to Professor Darby Dyer, Professor of Astronomy at Mount Holyoke College. Darby is a geologist who is using spectroscopic tools to study rocks and minerals we find on the Moon, Venus, or Mars. In her research, she always explores new and more advanced analytic tools for use in planetary geology, such as laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy that we will hear more about in just a few minutes, and more recently using machine learning for analytic spectroscopy. Recently, her lab was among just a few that were selected to study a collection of moon rocks that were kept in pristine conditions over decades to be studied with more advanced measurement systems today, 50 years after they were brought back to Earth by the Apollo missions. Do you remember when you held a moon rock in your hand for the first time, and how did that feel?
1: Absolutely. Um... So I was a graduate student. One of the reasons that I went to uh, graduate school at MIT was because they had funding for someone to look at lunar samples, and that was in 19. Well, I was in the fall of 1979. So at, at that point, the lunar samples were still really amazing stuff. I mean, everyone that was around me at that point remembered seeing the lunar landers and you know the astronauts coming back from the moon, et cetera, et cetera. So. When I found out that I could actually do a graduate project funded by NASA that would let me work on lunar samples, I was really excited. Um, And then absolutely, I remember the day my advisor said, okay, we need to, you know, I need to show you how to handle the lunar samples. And he walks over to this filing cabinet in his office, which had a lock on it, and he unlocks it and opens this drawer and, and he pulls out this box with, lunar samples. And he says, here, you carry this in the lab. And I, I was like, oh, oh, these are really lunar samples. And uh, yeah, you know, that was, that was probably the fall of 1979. And I'm still, I still have that sort of awe and panic. I mean, you know, my hands shake when I get the box out of this out of the safe, even now. So it's pretty, it's pretty amazing.
0: That's pretty amazing. Yeah, those moments are kind of uh burn into your brain you never exactly. forget them, right? Uh, it's really special. And you uh, recently I read that last year NASA opened actually NASA opened up the sample collection, they were previously unopened samples and you uh, get to study them all over again or you might have done that already. I, I haven't sure. haven't gotten them back yet, unfortunately.
1: Well, that's a really interesting story too. So they held back, you know, these two sample, well actually two big cores and then a bunch of other samples either kept under argon or in vacuum or frozen. Uh, and the idea was that technology would improve over the coming decades and so if we held some samples back uncontaminated when when 50 years was up, then there would be better technology to analyze them. And of course there is better technology to analyze them now. Uh, but it's been an interesting experience because the equipment for handling the Apollo samples, you know, the Apollo samples have been kept under various atmospheres. And of course, they're processed in a glove box. Um, so a lot of the sort of techniques that they figured out early on in the Apollo sample for handling the return samples, the people, those people are long retired. And so they've had to reinvent the wheel and figure out how to do this. So it's taken them a while to figure out how to open the, you know, saw the cores and op- open them up and split them and photograph them and do all the documentation. So to make a long story short, I haven't gotten my samples yet because um, they're still in the process of trying to break them up. there were nine teams that got sample, got awarded samples from these uh, recently released cores. And we <laughs> we're still working at the logistics of who gets what when. Um, but yeah, again, I'm really excited. Pristine lunar samples because, you know, much of what I study is uh, oxidation state of um, minerals and rocks, of iron in minerals and rocks. And so uh, the idea that we would get some things that came from a core that have never seen Earth's air are, is pretty interesting. Um, it should produce some really interesting, because I've worked a lot obviously on other lunar samples and um, the question of whether there's oxidized iron in them is still kind of up for grabs, but I'm expecting that some of the lunar samples that are that were in the cores that were buried should be completely reduced. but
0: How is that uh, significant to find oxidized iron? In the-
1: well, so the moon, I don't know if you know much about how the moon formed, so.
0: Um, a, maybe you can explain a little bit, yeah. So, uh, you
1: know, roughly 4 billion plus years ago, there was a proto-Earth-like planet, and there was a proto-moon-like object in our solar system, and they collided. And when that happened, much of the outer layer of the Earth actually melted and sort of spun off. And that's, in fact, what reformed as the Moon. And the denser stuff that was in the proto-Moon and the proto-Earth sort of also commingled and became the core of the Earth. So the net result of this is that the Moon is mostly composed of the stuff that was melted at that time in that collision. And because of the heat of the collision, the presumption is that uh, the moon would be dry, you know, that any hydrogen that was around would not have made it into this, into the moon. Um, and, you know, in generally speaking, in geology, we think of things that when something is dry, we also think of it as being fairly reduced. Um, and uh, the oxidation state of a planet is really important because it has, to, it has a primary effect on what kinds of rocks you get when the magmas crystallize. So, you know, I guess it sort of makes sense that how much oxygen is around when a magma is cooling affects what minerals you can build from oxygen atoms, right? If there's a lot of oxygen, you get one set of minerals. And if, you, if there's limited oxygen, you get another set of minerals. And so the minerals that we see on the surface of the moon are mostly uh, ones that formed not in a lot of oxygen. Um, on the other, other hand, more recently, we started to see data on hydrogen in like parts per million kinds of quantities in some of the lunar samples, some of the lunar volcanic samples. And uh, there've been some really interesting models that show that there has to be some water on the interior of the moon. So suddenly our whole paradigm is shifting. And you know, our excuse before was the moon is dry and therefore it should be reduced. And now suddenly the moon is wet. <laughs> so we have to investigate whether it's oxidized. So that's, the, that's why this is so important.
0: So it's interesting now 40 years after you uh, looked at your first lunar samples it's not just the technology changed and I would be curious to hear from you how to which extent like what's possible now that wasn't but also the um questions you are asking uh, by making these measurements have changed based on the knowledge we have gained right Exactly so yeah it's it's both of those things so
1: you know, when I was a graduate student, the method we were using to study oxidation state, well, you know, in 1979, 1980, there, there weren't a lot of options, right? You either did wet chemistry, uh, which requires a lot of sample, or you did Mossbauer spectroscopy, which requires a ground up sample of a considerable mass, like two or 300 milligrams, which is a lot when you, when you're talking about a lunar sample. Um, So, yeah, you know, in, in those days, most of the technologies that we had were for bulk samples, you know, think about age dating and uh, uh, chemical analysis, all of that was done by bulk methods, pretty much, um, although things very rapidly changed after that. Um, and then in the intervening 40 years, of course, m- microprobes of all, all sorts have been developed, right? Um, electron microprobes were doing major and minor elements, um you know secondary ion mass specs, sims that do uh uh you know light elements like hydrogen at microscales. but interestingly, in the forty years, no one has really come up with a really good way to do redox measurements at microscales and so for the past twenty five years, in fact that's been one of the focuses of my research program so i uh, I've been working on synchrotrons. Uh, all over the country at uh, Brookhaven National Lab on Long Island, and um, also at the Argonne National Lab in, outside of Chicago. So we now have pioneered a method to actually be able to not just measure oxidation state at micro scales, but also to actually map, make maps, which just blows my mind because I, you know, it's amazing when you work on a problem for 25 years uh, and then suddenly. Uh, the method that you develop and calibrate ends up as part of the software at the beamline. Um, and this has happened, you know, my son is uh, just about to turn 25 and I started working on this the, when I was pregnant with him. Um, so it's, that's been an interesting journey too. So yeah, it's just a joy to be able to take, you know, I used to have to grind these lunar samples up and now I don't have to grind them anymore. I just have to have a flat surface and I can put them in a synchrotron and get the same information that I did before, only at much finer scales, so i it's been that's been a fun journey i mean i i I love the part of my job that's calibration and instrument development and as a geoscientist, uh, one of the th- reasons why i've been motivated to do all this new technology development is because I have geologic problems that I want to answer, and so this is a perfect example of the kind of thing where You know, I answered a lot of questions by doing samples in bulk, but there were, then we hit a wall because we couldn't look at things microscale. You know, we couldn't look at a, in the case of the moon, there are these volcanoes, fire fountaining volcanoes, and they give off little droplets that uh, cool and become glass balls and fall back down to the surface of the moon. So the lunar regolith has about, I don't know, between 10 and 20% glass beads in it. Um, And of course, if the beads cooled in a vacuum, then we'd expect that they would have some kind of um or that they may preserve some kind of um, gradient of oxygen. And similarly, if the beads cooled in a gas cloud that came up with the with them in the volcano, then they might have a different signature. And so suddenly we can and we can ask and answer those questions with microscale developments. So, yeah, the you know my lifetime as a scientist has seen the move from bulk samples to nanoscale measurements. and it's just it's really exciting we just I, I'm like a kid in a candy store you can't <laughs> and you just can't explain how how interesting this is to me
0: yeah, that's really amazing at the amount of detail you can get out of it and in a way you're you're kind of reading traveling kind of in the past right because yes. you are finding finding these like just by finding these beads that's probably how we know that there was this volcanic activity exactly and right
1: and yep and that was in fact a chapter of my thesis we were trying to understand. At that time, there's also, uh, so glass beads form from volcanic eruptions on the moon, but they also form when there are impacts. Because when, when you know, a meteorite hits the surface of the moon, because there's no atmosphere, uh, A, the kinetic energy of the meteor um, gets converted to thermal energy when it hits the surface. So there's a tremendous amount of heat that causes melting. And it has the same kind of effect. The, there's a lot of melting, and then the beads rain back down on the surface. And so one of the chapters in my thesis was about, whether you could tell the difference between a glass bead that formed from a fire fountain and a glass bead that formed from impacts, and the answer is no. <laughs>
0: okay, <laughs> could but, be either way.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it was an interesting question.
0: So, so how did you um, uh, get to the point where you are now, basically, and lo- looking far back, right? What interested you in geology? When did you know that's what you want to do, and when did you? Was it just a coincidence that kind of the Apollo program and the lunar missions happened kind of at the same time that you got interested in the planetary totally geology. And the planetary yeah, missions. I
1: actually wanted to be a, uh, a field geologist. I mean, I've always been an outdoor person. You know, love hiking, boating, being outside is my favorite thing even now. Uh, so to me, a geology seems like a really good fit career-wise. Um, But it turns out that at least in the 1970s, everybody that wanted to become a geologist had the same idea that they wanted to be one of those people that walks around with a backpack and makes geologic maps. And uh, so I applied to a bunch of graduate schools in that field, which is sort of called structural geology. And then because I had been working as an undergraduate for this professor at MIT, he literally came in the lab one day and said to me, well, Darby, we haven't gotten your application yet. And I said, what application? He said, well, aren't you going to apply to graduate school here? And I said, well, uh, Roger, I kind of want to be a field geologist. And he's like, well, I respect that, but I think you should, you should apply anyway. Um, so he, I kid you not, he, he, he left the lab and he came back like 15 minutes later with the application form, which in those days you type on a typewriter. And uh, he said, uh, there's a typewriter in the lab next door. Go fill this out. <laughs> And I I don't even remember how I got the, he may have even paid for the application fee. I mean, you know, he was just determined I was going to do this. So I went next door on on a wing and a prayer. I typed out the thing. Um, And then a week later he came back in the lab when I was working and said, oh, by the way, you're in. And I was like, in, (laughs) what what did I do? And he said, oh, you've been accepted to MIT. I said, no, that's nice. But Roger, I want to, anyway, I, so I interviewed at all the other places to do field geology and, to make a long story short, they all said you're an idiot if you turned down an opportunity to work on lunar samples at MIT to come here and do field geology because field geologists are going to be a dime a dozen and people who are technologically savvy who can work on advanced instrumentation—that's the future of geochemistry. So uh, they were right, um, and so I've always, you know, I've always been guided by this idea that the interesting problems in science come at the interfaces of fields. And when someone tells me, oh, you can't, well, in the example I just gave, you can't measure redux state at microscales, my answer is, oh, yes, you can. We just have to to figure it out. And so that's happened over and over again in my career. I started out trying to being interested in measuring hydrogen in, in rocks and figured out a way to do that uh, quite effectively. And then I got interested in light elements, it turned out there were, we had the ability to measure light elements, but no standards because there weren't any independent methods of measuring light elements. So I developed standards and, you know, worked with national labs and figured out how to characterize the standards and then made them available through museums. So that's been sort of a theme of my career, which is sort of what brought me to LIBS because what got me in the whole uh, LIBS game. Was me contacting the head of the chemchem Chem instrument and saying, Hey, I have a lot of standards in my lab and a lot of experience with calibration of instruments. Do you need any help with that and indeed, he did need help with that so uh it's sad because i don't I don't now get to go out in the field except very rarely, but uh occasionally one of my collaborators will you know suffer me to go out in the field. And I'm always like a kid in a candy store again. I'm so excited to be out. to get to actually collect rocks that I get to take back. But it, it, it is true that I um, that having the expertise to do the analytical work has always been career-wise a very useful thing.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, can you explain, since you just mentioned ChemCam and LIPS, um, uh, and I know you uh, have worked on things related to Mars kind of a lot. Can you explain a little bit what LIPS is, what the significant is, what CAMCAM cam is? Uh, many people might not know that, uh, that are listening to this.
1: So one. again, let's turn the clock back. It's about, oh, more than 10 years now, maybe 15 years ago. So when NASA decides to send a, a mission to anywhere, they have different kinds of missions. Some missions are proposed wholesale with all of the, you know, all of the instruments are proposed as a package. And then there are other kinds of missions that NASA does that are called flagship missions that uh, basically NASA says, this is the parameter, this is the size and this is how much power we're gonna have and how much mass we can carry. And then it allows the community to propose instruments to go on it. And so Mars Science Lab and in fact, Mars 2020 are both flagship missions, which means that people proposed instruments to go on there. So, uh, and generally speaking, when NASA picks the instrument suite, it's looking for different things. So when they developed um, Mars Science Lab, they wanted to have instruments that could do really uh, high accuracy chemical analyses. They also wanted a tool that could do remote standoff analyses, which of course LIBS can do. And then they had, of course, many other needs. They have a mass spectrometer and cameras, and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, to make a long story short, Uh, At that time, LIBS was really in its infancy in geological applications, but Roger Weens wrote an excellent proposal, and he managed to convince them to fly ChemCam. And so what ChemCam does is uh, basically the technique of laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. You fire a laser at a rock, and in the case of ChemCam, it's from what we call a standoff distance. So the rocks are uh, up to seven meters away, which is pretty amazing on on um, on another on another planet. Uh, the uh, laser, uh, for a very brief, of, brief period of time, heats up the sample, creates a plasma. And of course, as the plasma decays back down and cools off, it gives off energy. And that energy is recorded by a telescope and, and um, in the form of a spectrum. So it's what I loved about LIBS when I first was learning about the technique is that it's it's really firmly grounded in uh, x-ray absorption spectroscopy, you know to a geochemist x-ray fluorescence, understanding that is is sort of second nature. Um, you know, atomic absorption, another one, so atomic emission was a sort of a skill set that I thought I had. Um, so when I heard that you could measure a plasma that's the size of a you know a, a, a couple a millimeter literally uh, from seven meters away, I was just completely sold. Um, and so then I, I was sort of adopted by the team and then was subsequently selected to be officially part of the mission. So, um, but little did I know how difficult this would be because again, you know, we all have our, we bring our biases and our backgrounds to things. So uh, when I first got involved in this project, I realized, oh, it's not as simple as atomic absorption or atomic emission because uh, such a hot turbulent plasma is actually having interactions between the elements that are in there. And so it's not a simple univariate calibration curve like I was taught in chemistry in in my second year college. Uh, So then I simultaneously for another project, in fact, for my synchrotron research, I was getting involved in um, machine learning methods and working with collaborators at the University of Massachusetts who do machine learning. And it just turned out that the intersection of my work on synchrotron stuff with machine learning Was exactly the same methods that worked on understanding LIBS plasmas. And so that's taken me down the rabbit hole of trying to understand LIBS.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, kind of uh, how you were always able to find uh, these like new methods and uh, uh, realize kind of the importance also and get involved. uh, And also machine learning. I mean, in the last few years, that has really in every like scientific industry, etc., taken off. Um, but I remember talking to you a few years back about these projects. And you were kind of, I, I, I don't know if I can say, I don't have the background to say you were ahead of your time. I but modestly, uh, no, I think I was ahead of bit, my time. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I so. have two comments about the first one is about that. The first one is that my advisor, my PhD advisor, who, bless his heart, he died of cancer. Couple of years after I finished, so I was his last PhD student. But anyway, he he was trained as a chemist, and he always said to me, "Darby, if you understand one kind of spectroscopy, you can understand all kinds of spectroscopy. You know, it's all energy in, signal out, um, and all, all, you know, at some level, all the same processes always arise in every kind of spectroscopy. And having that background it has just been a tremendously empowering thing for me career-wise because it means that." I, you know, the first thing I do when I encounter a new spectroscopy like LIB's is I put it in the context of what I already know. And then the machine learning stuff, uh, well, there's a funny story I can explain. I can tell you how I got into this. So one summer in my laboratory, which you've, you've visited, so you know what it's like, we have students lined up at computer stations processing data mostly. And that particular summer we were processing a lot of the synchrotron data, which is basically you take a signal and you fit a background and then you, you extract a peak and then you fit component peaks to the peak, you know, good classical spectroscopy. So one particular summer, I just happened to have also in my group, a student who we hired to do web programming because we had another grant funded that we had to do a website for something. And, you know, kids are talking in the lab and one day I was there <laughs> and, you know, the kids are talking away about, I shouldn't call them kids, the students are talking away about their projects. and uh, I hear one woman student explain very patiently to this, to my programmer student, what she was doing. And, you know, she went into this whole thing about component peaks and blah, blah, blah. And his comment was, well, that's a stupid way to do that. <laughs> and she went, but Darby told me to do it this way. Um, anyway, uh, he said, you should be using machine learning for that. Again, he, you know, it was, he was prescient too. Uh, so I said, okay, wise guy. Um, you know, Erica, give him this data set. Let's see what he can let's see what what Mr. Wise guy can do and I kid you not an hour later he came back with the calibration curve that was you know prior to that time this technique our accuracy was like plus or minus ten to twenty percent absolute, and the calibration curve had a you know like an r squared of 0.99. <laughs> and the the prediction error was was about one plus or minus one percent and i I said, I don't believe this anyway. But I believed enough of it that we sticked him on the problem. And it it has, as I alluded to earlier, it's made a huge difference in the whole synchrotron world. And now, as I turn and apply these machine learning methods to all the different kinds of spectroscopy, all the different wavelengths where I work, uh, you know, it just so happens that what works in, again, just what my advisor said, what works at one wavelength range will often work at another. Um, So, essentially, you know, you have this toolkit of machine learning tools that, help you understand spectra, and because all spectra have, you know, are fundamentally the same, all types of spectroscopy are fundamentally the same kinds of um, phenomena, so it shouldn't be surprising that uh, the methods that work on one kind of spectroscopy at one wavelength also work at another, so that's been the joy of the last 15 years of my career, and I'm going to have a hard time giving, giving up this bone. I, I suspect that as a retired person, I will keep working on this because I I feel that. Um, spectroscopy, the entire field of spectroscopy that we do is poised for a revolution. And the revolution is going to be called machine learning. And, you know, so many types of spectroscopy are so biased toward, you know, this is the feature I'm interested in, and I have my well-established ways of interpreting this feature, and that's the best way to do it. And I think every type of spectroscopy that has that kind of attitude now is going to have a big change coming when we realize that we now have tools that can use the entire spectrum and not just in an individual feature. And that's going to change fundamentally uh, how we operate and how we think about spectroscopy.
0: Um, yeah. It's interesting. I have just been reading a lot about um, use of Raman spectroscopy in life science and uh, use in tissue to identify diseases, et cetera, and it's a very similar problem. You have very complex uh, spectra with many peaks and it's exactly another area where just yeah. like this t- to perform analytics and where uh, uh, if, if that machine learning was going to have like a huge impact kind of as well it's really interesting yeah I mean um, I, you know I
1: tell all my students that they I, I, I now sort of it's not part of the major but I almost require everybody to take at least a semester of um, computer science now I, it, it's just a minimum um, and you know, you're, I you, people are going to be troglodytes if they don't <laughs> if they don't start to pay attention to this. Um, and of course, the commercial companies are starting to pay attention. But um, many of my colleagues are still so mired in the attitude of if you don't understand the underlying physical processes that give you this result, then you can't use it. And that's short-sighted because, it, it, as it turns out, in many cases, once you do the machine learning stuff and you Figure out a way to do something better, then you can turn around and look back. Does this work better? And you get some really interesting uh, insights into that. Like um, one of the things that we've done in my group is uh, in live spectroscopy, you always have bremstrelum uh, adding to the baseline of your spectra. and of course the uh, conventional way to deal with this is just to you know fit up fit the baseline and remove the bremstrelum, but We've done some research that says that there's actually a lot of information in the brems and uh, in fact you can actually predict elements from the bremsstrahllin alone so we've t- we've done comparisons where we strip the baseline out and try to do machine learning models with the data with the supposed peaks <laughs> that we that we took the baseline from and and with the baseline and it turns out you know the baseline itself doesn't do a half bad job either so there's you know, we're starting to understand which elements are evident in the br- brimstone as a result of you know looking at this data that we used to throw away, but that with machine learning we now have tools to to try to understand better. So I, I find it obviously incredibly exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is incredibly exciting. That um, but obviously, if you have machine learning tools, you need like things to learn from, right? That's the so- Achilles'
1: heel of machine learning. Is is definitely uh calibration sets. And so, again, serendipitously, it's a good thing I got into machine learning at the end of my career, not at the beginning, because I've been a mineralogist for you know 40-some years. And so my lab has one of the biggest collections of well-characterized rocks and minerals of anywhere in the world, maybe even the biggest collection. Um, So we, you know, again, I was, I got there, I I sort of saw this coming and started organizing these into suites so that we could do this. And that's, again, been a, that's been a huge asset for my libs work that we have almost 3000 rock powder calibration standards that we can use to, to take data, but that is absolutely the the Achilles heel of any machine learning method is that you have to have something for the machine to learn from.
0: How, uh, why, yeah, how did that start or what, where did that originate from to build a 3000 sample database?
1: So uh, I guess there's two answers to that. The first one is, as you know, I teach at an undergraduate only institution and I, 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 I have been at Mount Holyoke. I came there in the middle of my career. So I had to sort of change my thinking about my research and to be more focused on projects that were that undergraduates could con- contribute to in a viable, useful way that wasn't gratuitous. <laughs> uh, Cause I don't believe in dummy projects. So, Uh, early on, in fact, as early as the, uh, the previous set of Mars rovers, the Mars exploration rovers, those had mossbauer power spectrometers on them. And so for that mission, we collected a giant data set of uh, multi-temperature mossbauer power data so that we could have something to interpret the Mars data with. Um, And so I've sort of been, you know, keeping an eye out for these kind of calibration projects because they're really well suited to undergraduate theses. And, uh, you know, the, as I said earlier, lives is such a you know the, the fundamentals of, the, of it are so simple that it's something that an undergrad can pretty well understand. So I've had some amazing undergraduate theses that have come out of that. So that's part of the answer, and then the other part of the answer is um, because I've worked with many people over the course of my career. When it became apparent that we were going to be involved in uh, Mars Science Lab, I started calling up my friends who had been analyzing rock powders for their whole careers and saying hey, you know, what do you do with the powders that you have finished analyzing? And in many cases, they were sitting in bottles and jars in basements. Um, so I was fortunate to get some funding for this. And I had a student spend literally six weeks crawling around the basements of geology buildings and pulling out powders and then, you know, working with the people there to figure out, well, which powders had which analyses and getting the chemical analyses and then putting this together. But the development of that 3000 sample set, which we call the Millennium Set, uh, has taken more than a decade. Um, but, and all just because, again, I'm, I was in the right place at the right time. I, you know, I was trained as a geochemist. And so I knew where all the good geochem labs were. And people were just very generous with giving me powders. I mean, which is, I mean, who wouldn't want to do that, right? When you've done so much hard work on a sample, and you've already done your research, it's kind of fun to be able to say, oh, well, these rocks can live on and have another purpose. And so uh, it's been yeah. a win-win thing, you know?
0: Yeah, but on your part, that requires like a really quite an amount of patience, right, to oh. build kind of to that and maintain it. And uh, uh, you might have not even seen the, or, or you might oh, have seen I, the value I, of it in the, in the beginning, but it's still hard, exactly. hard yep. work to collect. All well,
1: and, and, you know, just, just the inventory. I mean, as I said, I think we've been working on this for maybe four, 15 years. And I would say that it wasn't until a year ago that we finally felt like we had found all the errors in the chemical analyses, Because, <laughs> you know, people because the chemical analyses came on scraps of paper, spreadsheets, um, and kind of, and, you know, we had to uh, interlibrary loan the theses and, and type them in from somebody's, you know, mimeographed thesis topic or thesis copy. So the analyses, you know, we've over the years found the problems and, you know, then we go back and just retrace our steps and find out that somebody made a typo back in, you know, 2008 and it lives on. So I, I think we've now gotten all the all the typos out of there. But yeah, no, it's been a. labor of love and when i retire this set of samples will live on and you know who knows what the next generation of science will do with these rock powders so it's uh it's you know when you do fundamental work like this and you create these fundamental sets of samples it's enormously satisfying because it's not just about you it's about what the future generations will do with it and
0: that's pretty neat i think yeah that's amazing are you thinking about kind of Uh, You said, okay, I collected, I uh, uh, characterized, I do my science with it, and now uh, you're thinking about preservation, pass it on, like, will they stay, uh, will this be... Uh, will they stay forever at Mount Holyoke College, or do you uh, do you think about these things? Uh, oh I, well, when, no, I'm to,
1: I'm I'm very close. I work very closely with people at the Smithsonian, which of course is really called the National Museum of Natural History, NMNH, uh, and I, I've kind of got a verbal understanding with them that when I retire, they'll take my collections. Um, so you know, it won't be every sample, but all of the samples that are well characterized uh, will hopefully go to the Smithsonian, which will make them available to other people. Um, it, it's not a not a trivial thing. I'm not close to retirement right now, but I'm already working on the inventory uh, in, in the lab, trying to you know throw out samples that no one would ever want to look at, and make sure that the samples that we do have are well uh, characterized. And that in fact, the data from my lab are in a form where people can retrieve them um, for subsequent studies. So as you know, you've seen the lab website. We, um, every spectrum I've ever taken on the MOSBOW, which is some 4,000 and counting spectra, uh, is posted on the website. And the website actually automatically looks every day at the six different instruments that we have in the lab and looks to see if we've generated any new data. And if we have, it gets posted that night. So every 24 hours, my uh, research group website gets updated. And again, that archive of uh, data it will be another, hopefully, lasting uh, contribution of my work to, you know, to science.
0: Yeah. And so now, now of course, we have been to Mars and there's new missions kind of coming up. So um, can you describe a little bit how your measurements contribute kind of to the scientific understanding of those missions, and what have we learned from these LIPS uh, spectroscopy experiment kind of already, and what are you looking forward to learning, or what questions are you looking forward to understanding um,
1: So in the, the most important thing, of course, is that, you know, Mars is a pretty specialized environment, right? It, I mean, it has a pretty tenuous atmosphere, but it's pure CO2. So uh calibrating a limbs instrument in that under that conditions is a pretty specialized thing. Um but more common in the solar system are what we call airless bodies like the moon or uh um of course are of course Earth, a body with the, the body with air. So one of the directions I one of the things I'm really interested in is what how do you calibrate the libs under different conditions and how important is is the atmosphere to your measurements Um, and of course the you know phenomenalistically the reason why this is important is because when you create the plasma the amount of overburden atmosphere pressuring the plasma affects how rapidly the plasma can evolve and so we you know we know you can you can see it actually the plasma sizes are different in the chamber when they're air or vacuum or uh co2 So we know the plasma evolution is different. And so I'm interested in the underlying physical phenomena that affect how the plasma evolves under different um, atmospheres and whether or not you can collect a data set under Mars conditions and somehow do a machine learning transformation that will allow you to predict uh, those same samples in air or in under a vacuum. So there's a bunch of interchangeable, you know, is there interchangeability or do you always have to redo the calibration every time you go to a different body? Um so, and these are really important questions because they affect the accuracy of the measurements. Um, we're also doing I'm involved in missions to Venus, and one of the one of my current proposals funded is to uh, study the effects of uh, libs under Venus conditions. And on Venus, the key thing is not the uh, the temperature because, of course, if you're you know the surface temperature in Venus is about four hundred eighty c. Uh, so, of course, since the plasma is so much hotter than that, the temperature on the Venus surface doesn't really matter, but the pressure is 93 bars, which is huge. It's like, you know, o- o- deep ocean. Uh, so, I'm gradually accumulating a set of data where we have the same samples run under Venus conditions, Earth conditions, vacuum, and Mars, and trying to understand how, you know, what's, well, there's lots of, lots of interesting things. First of all, how do you calibrate under those different conditions, and do you have to do it for each one, or can you extrapolate? uh using machine learning and then also what are the underlying fundamental physical processes that cause those differences so um lots of meaty science that remains to be done but lots of potential for limbs i mean I, I think LIBS is the it's going to overcome x-ray fluorescence in, in terms of being the preferred technique for landers on planetary surfaces uh, so we just have to there's still a lot of development work that has to get done, but um, I think in 20 years, LIBS will, be, LIBS will be the gold standard and XRF because of the, um, the counting times and the need for, to be proximal, uh, XRF is not gonna be as useful, whereas LIBS because you can do it standoff remotely is going to take over. So uh, I think this technique is worthy of investing a lot of time in, in to try to understand it so we can move the technique
0: forward. Thank you so much for the nice conversation. Oh, Um, I really enjoyed it. It's always great to talk to you, and I always learn a lot.
1: (laughs) Well, Um, my my pleasure. You can you can tell I hate talking about this stuff. It's
0: terrible. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Thanks again to my guest, Professor Darby Dyer. Check out the show notes to find more infos about her research, as well as infos about lips instruments on Mars and Darby's Mineral Database. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Princeton Instruments on social media for more episodes. We also host episodes that focus on scientific imaging in the life sciences, partnering with Teledyne Photometrics. Follow them on social media to see when the next episode is released. Check out princetoninstruments.com for the latest in scientific camera and spectroscopy technology for physical and life sciences. See you next time and have a great day.